Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Welcome, Matt. Welcome, Adrian. <laughs> uh, so we're back to talk about more science fiction. Back what do we action. do here on this podcast, Matt? Well, we pick science fiction books and talk about them, don't we? A rhetorical question, I guess. You've answered <laughs> it yourself. Uh, this month, we have a new book. That book is The Waste Tide by Stanley Chan, or as his name might be pronounced in Chinese, Chen Qiu Fan. <laughs> exactly, which I'm not going to attempt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this so yeah, is a very exciting one. It is. So we're reading a Chinese book in translation. Uh, we'll all be reading it in translation. Matt will be reading it in the original Chinese as well as like some of the translation. Uh, it's worth saying that the translation is done by translator Ken Liu too. So he is another like important figure in the, you know, kind of production of this book in English. Um, yeah. So Waste Tide, it's a brand new novel, Chinese novel. We've wanted to do something like a Chinese science fiction novel for a while. So I know this is really exciting for me, Matt. I, I know. It's yeah, totally. I feel the same way. Um, it's, uh, you know, China has been a big part of my life. Uh, just, you know, uh, semi disclosure. I used to live in China for a few years. I studied Chinese literature in university and, uh, you know, it's, it's, something that I, I I like I'm very interested in, in China and I have been for a long time so Chinese science fiction naturally combines a few of my interests and it's very <laughs> exciting to get to talk about it with you yeah no this this will be this will be very cool I'm I'm glad we're getting to this this is the equivalent of like having Nate on the podcast and talking about Alaska for several hours like for me this is like your equivalent <laughs> <laughs> Um, also, sorry, worth saying just really quickly that this will also be the spoiler free version of us talking about this just for like new listeners. Um, we're not going to talk spoilers about the book this time around. We will in a future episode, but like you can, mm -hmm. you can listen to us. Yeah, this is our pre-read. We're going to do context. We're going to do book facts. We're going to do stuff that might be interesting for you to think about when you go in and start reading. So do you want to talk about some book facts? Uh, <laughs> book facts <laughs> book facts i had to do it to thank you, you this time thank you perfect perfect <laughs> let's let's go let's do it <laughs> all right all right um so we are of course reading waste tide that's the english title for the book huang tao by right. stanley chan or chan Qiu fan um it was first published in chinese in 2013 uh, the translation, however, is brand new. Just came out this year, 2019, and right, translated I think April. by Ken, yeah, translated by Ken Liu. Uh, Ken Liu is a uh, very famous, uh, at this point, probably the most famous translator of uh, mainland Chinese science fiction into English mm -hmm. uh, in America, mm -hmm. uh, because he did the first book of the Three Body Problem. Right. Um, he did the first and the last book of the three of the yeah, of that right. series. Uh, so three body problem. Dark Forest was another one. And the last one was Ken again. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Waste Tide is uh, uh, Stanley Chan's first novel. Um, he's written a lot of mm -hmm. short stories, though, and he started getting his short stories published uh, many years before the, uh, 2013. I think his first published story was 1997 or something. Right. Um, and you can read some of those short stories in Invisible Planet, which are Invisible Planets, which is a 
big collection of short stories that Ken Liu put together. They're all Chinese science fiction short stories that he translated into English over the years. Yeah. Um, and and, and so, if you, so his short stories are also like available in English. Oh, yes. Yes. And in fact, they are also available if you like audio content. There are some free Clark's World podcasts where they read oh, aloud cool. some works by Stanley Chan and other Chinese science fiction. Uh, right. Folks. That's a as cool well podcast, as non-Chinese actually. I, I listen to that from time to time, even though I'm not the biggest like audiobook person. But they do. That's that's a really well done, like free science fiction resource. Yeah, totally. It's really cool. Um, so, yeah, uh, this book is about 350 pages in the English translation. Um, Shortish. Yeah, that's kind of a, a good length, I think. Um, the genre, uh, as far as the genre goes, well, we'll do content warning actually first. Um, so neither of us has read this book. And so right. it might be a little bit difficult for us to to say exactly what, what content to be aware of. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I, we usually, you know, for for regular listeners, you know, we usually do content warnings up front here. This is a book that we're both going into blind. So just be aware that we don't I don't think we have any particular content warnings for this episode and like we don't know about the book yet so we're just like i think unable to to do it but we will as usual at the beginning of our post read sure so just uh i you know uh try i guess if you're concerned if you have some reason to be concerned do your own research as far as we know there's not anything in particular but we don't actually know it is definitely about like the lives of poor people um, so whatever stuff might come up with that, it's like the lower social classes in this like kind of yeah. near future setting. So that will be an element of it. And like, whatever yeah, for you might sure. Expect to come so that's, that. yeah. And that kind of leads into the genre issue. Like, what is this book? Well, it's, it's mm-hmm. a story of that involves, um, kind of eco sci-fi as well as cyberpunk elements, as well as like near future kind of playing with capitalism and inequality and like social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, it and like, also I guess, like Chinese style socialism plus capitalism plus globalism, <laughs> like all of the above economic yeah, issues. Exactly. Um, uh, the author, Stanley Chan, has talked a, a lot over the years when he's asked about how he thinks about genre and how he thinks about science fiction. He talks about um, realism a lot. He, he, he refers to science fiction as a as a genre that's capable of helping us understand the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's. That's certainly something he said in interviews that relate to this work also. So I think, you know, that's kind of something to keep in mind. Right. This is not this is not like a pure flight of fancy only for entertainment's sake. You know, this is something where he's he's kind of considered the the importance of the topics as well. Which is how he tends to write his science. I mean, like from I've only read his short stories, but I've read a number of them and they all fit within that. There's also um, we're going to be talking about this um, kind of critical essay written by a Chinese science fiction author about Chinese science fiction and like particular subgenre of that fiction, which uh, he labels as ultra unreal. And like by that definition, I think his short Stanley's short stories in this novel, from what I can tell, definitely kind of fit into that. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think that our listeners might well have read that before because that's a somewhat I, I, I don't know when I think of like Chinese science fiction and like reading about it in English like that, that comes to mind, that critical essay in particular. Yeah, we'll we'll get into Ultra Unreal and, and that essay uh, more uh, later in the episode as well. Right. So, yeah, let's say say a few words maybe about Stanley Chan. Um, he is uh, 
a relatively young uh, Chinese science fiction author. He's he was born in the early '80s, and so that puts him as as you know in among current famous Chinese science fiction authors, one of the you know if not the youngest, certainly in the the quote unquote younger generation. He's a generation younger than um, the old Sissin, uh, right. who of course is the three body problem author. Uh, is the most famous Chinese science fiction author in the world. Um, Stanley Chan is uh, from uh, the, the city of Shantou, or Shantou uh, which is in the south of China, kind of near Hong Kong. Um, he is very, very well educated and extremely uh, uh, successful in various fields. So he went to Beijing University, which is like the Harvard of China, he studied mm-hmm. literature and film. So he, he definitely has worked with film before. He's done uh, production work on films and student films and also um, other kinds of uh, film media. Um, he worked at Baidu and at Google. Um, right. Baidu being essentially like the Chinese version of Google, like search giant, social media, all that. So they're like one of the big tech companies out there. Yeah. And he's involved in the tech scene in other ways as well. He's been a founder, a co-founder of of tech tech companies, and he's given given a lot of talks at tech conferences. And he's kind of involved in that scene, um, right? In Beijing and Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And then there's the translator, Adrian. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the translator, right? Yeah. So I mean, as we mentioned, Ken has translated a lot of science fiction. Um, he's also written a lot of science fiction. Like I got introduced to him through his story, Paper Menagerie, which I read in some, you know, uh, uh, like I, I think one of the magazines that I used to subscribe to and then ended up getting nominated and won a Hugo that year. Uh, somewhat soon after that, I also became aware of his Chinese translation and the fact that he was going to translate the three-body problem into English, um, working with like Liz Goronsky, who's an editor here in New York, who did a lot of work to like put that whole thing together. Um, and that was a really big deal at the time because it was the first like Chinese science fiction novel that was going to get translated into English. Um And he also, I mean, he's translated a bunch of short stories into English. He's written a bunch of short stories, you know, Three Body Problem, One a Hugo, Folding Beijing, which is a short story by Hao Jin Fang that he translated, One a Hugo, Um, the Paper Menagerie, his own fiction, One a Hugo. Uh, And he has two novels out right now, The Grace of Kings and Wall of Storms, which are two kind of like fantasy steampunky like chinese themed steampunky fantasy novels he calls it silk punk is the uh kind of label that he gives to them and they're cool they're these like big dynastic political like kind of thriller fantasy thriller type thing so if you're into that kind of fiction those are he's a very good writer i really like his writing. like when i read paper menagerie like this was before i knew anything about him it was just like one of many stories in this collection i was reading and i was like sobbing by the end of it like it, it really stuck out to me as like i'm gonna look up this guy and like find more of his fiction because i really like it um he also i i guess it's worth saying like i've emailed with him a few times back and forth he came on the uh the science fiction book club subreddit that I used to run. Um, so he like did an ammo with us like a couple of years ago and AMA asked me anything. Uh, and he's just like a really friendly, great person. Like he does a lot of this work, um, 
in the science fiction publishing world. And I think it's, I think it's really cool. He seems like a really great guy from like the couple of times I've interacted with him. And uh, yeah, just, I, I think that's worth calling out too, is at least like good people <laughs> kind of in the mix here um, and worth, I think not just reading his translations and his, his critical essays too. Like we're going to be talking a little bit, this, this um, invisible planets, which is this, you know, science fiction, Chinese science fiction anthology that he put out. He has really great critical essays, both about Chinese science fiction and the like individual authors that he's translating. And we're going to be kind of talking about some of that too, because he thinks and writes really well, both in terms of like criticism as well as the actual fiction. Yeah. Very, very cool guy. And, uh, he and Stanley Chan are apparently friends. They were friends before this, this particular Mm, uh, translation. So it's, it's, it's this cool, another cool connection there. Right. Also kind of cool. Stanley speaks English. And so like, uh, like Matt, you gave me a podcast episode that he was on. We'll link that in the show notes. Like you can actually hear him speak on various podcasts and stuff about his own fiction too, which as Ken pointed out to me when we were emailing is like worth doing. Like, you know, Ken's response was like, don't just listen to me. Also listen to the like Chinese people who are writing this stuff and what they say about it. Um, and so we'll, we'll link to some of that stuff as well. Definitely. Super cool. I love it. Cool. So why did we choose this book in particular, Matt? <laughs> well, uh, why, why do question. Chinese? <laughs> yes. Why do Chinese science fiction is sort of easy, an easy one, I guess. I've like already said, you know, it's, it's a confluence of a bunch of my interests. And also we like to, you know, bring diverse types of books into this podcast if we can. And, and this is, you know, a, a, an area of the world and a language that we haven't, uh, that we haven't dealt with. Although we have read works by people like Ted Chiang who are of Chinese ancestry that's very you know it's a very different cultural context he's an American he grew up in America and you know this is a book written by a man who grew up in China and you know his first language is Chinese and it's you know he's coming from a different uh right and lives and works in China currently too yeah so that's that's a relatively easy one I think but why this book in particular well um it's a new translation uh, it's just coming out. I think that's part of it. Another part of it yeah. is that the translations by Ken Liu, who is somebody who we both um, have a lot of uh, respect for. And um, another part of it is that, you know, this is a book that deals with uh, some themes and issues that are interesting to us uh, more broadly and that we haven't covered as much. So it's going to deal with some um, ecological sci-fi stuff, mm-hmm. which um, is a whole thing that we haven't really gotten into a lot on this pod. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's exciting too. Um, so, uh, what about you, Adrian? Are there particular reasons you're excited about it? Yeah. I mean, you know, when we were discussing, you know, we kind of started this off as like, let's talk about some Chinese science fiction, which book should we talk about? And I think the elephant in the room is three body problem. And, you know, we didn't necessarily want to talk about that both because it's very much the first novel in a series. It doesn't stand alone very well. And so, given kind of the way we structure things that doesn't work as well for us. Um, but also like I read that and frankly, I, I wasn't super into it. Like I didn't love that novel and I found it like in particular, like kind of problematic in certain, like not very interesting ways. Um, so I was very excited to try to like read something else. And you and I talked about a couple of different novels and this was the one that at least to me kind of popped up as like, I've read Stanley's work before. Uh, and loved it. I've read Ken's work before and it's really good. Um, 
I think this is like maybe more kind of traditionally recognizably science fiction than some of the other, like, you know, we brought up the fat years at one point, which is like, you know, maybe more contemporary with a little bit of magical realism than like science fiction per se. Like we'll talk more about genre, but like this seemed to kind of like check the most number of boxes as well as being something like new that both both of us get to like experience for the first time, which I, I, I find fun. Like as we've gone along and done this podcast more and more, like I think it's become more comfortable for like me and hopefully both of us to pick up books where we're like, well, neither of us has read it, but like we think we can get a good sense that this will at least be interesting to talk about. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to do that now and a lot more fun to do that. Yeah. It's cool. You know, Chinese science fiction is such a vast thing. It's not even one thing. Oh, totally. There's so many things that like if if we started out thinking like let's do a Chinese sci-fi book, there were so many directions we could have gone with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, you know, on some level it's just kind of contingent on like what we feel like right now. And like, right. you know, if we did this again, you know, we would do a different thing. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, you and I did talk about like this will not be the only Chinese science fiction book we ever read. Like we had at, talked yeah. at one point about doing Invisible Planets just because it's like, well, that's an interesting introduction to like all the different kinds of Chinese science fiction. So as we do more in the future, there will be that kind of introduction. Um, you know, in the end, I th I'm glad we went with a novel that there was this like novel that presented itself. But yeah, this is this is like not like our definitive take on Chinese science fiction so much as like, ooh, let's do this particular thing because it looks really cool. Totally. And, you know, the same stuff that applies to when we've uh, when we've done a Japanese science fiction book or when we've done a science fiction book by an author from, you know, X, Y, D, X, Y, Z place. You know, it, it, none of them can be the definitive thing. Right. The definitive podcast the definitive definitive you know piece of cultural criticism uh, you know on, on works from that place or even from that person so we'll definitely revisit any you know we have we reserve the right to revisit any right. and all things <laughs> well you know i think it's a thing we like doing down to like you know reading semiosis then dark eden back to back because they're kind of similar novels in certain way that was like a fun thing to do with that like we will definitely be revisiting both the chinese science fiction aspect of this but probably also hopefully doing some more eco fiction and some more like you know kind of near future stuff and we can compare it to some of the near future stuff we've already talked about in an interesting way too Indeed. Cool, man. Well, so, you know, I think one of the kind of like larger things we did want to talk about is maybe like a history of Chinese science fiction, um, which, again, like, you know, understanding that Chinese science fiction is not one monolithic thing. But also there is a particular history of like what as science fiction meant in China over the last like, you know, 100 to 50 years. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'll say first, um, before I, I, I give a little capsule history of this, that I, I'm not an expert in Chinese science fiction. Um, you know, China's a big place. There's a lot of places in the world where people speak Chinese and write in Chinese that are not even the mainland, you know, People's Republic of China. Um, it's a whole thing. Uh, and so even if I, you know, had read way more of the recent uh, science fiction that's come out of mainland China, like I still wouldn't be able to call myself an expert. And I, ha I haven't read enough of that either. So there's just, <laughs> there's just kind of no sense in which I, I can claim to be like a, a great authority on this stuff. What I, the only thing I can claim to be is a fan, you know, and 
I think, um, you know, with that in mind, I'll, I'll sort of do my best to, to talk about some stuff that I know. And, and if I make a mistake, feel free to let me know. And, and I would actually even be very happy if you did. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah. And I think that I, that's, that's a very good point. Like this episode is us as like fans who are like excited to share this stuff, not experts who are like talking yeah. about it from authority. Um, although it is maybe worth like, you know, you have like worth saying like you have lived in China and like studied Chinese literature, like in an academic standpoint, like you do probably have like m more authority than like 99% of people in America to, or at least like more kind of like knowledge than most of us. Like I'm, I'm really curious to get to hear from you, Matt, because like you have a context for this stuff that I just don't at all and like your context might be like much lower than a lot of other people's but it's also i think much higher than like probably the average listener to our podcast and definitely than me all right well uh with with that uh uh greasing uh of the wheels uh <laughs> <laughs> i guess we'll get get going right. um so since we're talking about um stuff that was written in chinese um, and we're talking about kind of the, the views that Chinese people have had about stuff that was written in Chinese. It's worth saying a little bit about Chinese itself. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, there are a lot of things we could start saying, but I'll, I'll, there's two, I think that, that are probably the most important. First is, um, just names. This is like a basic thing, but, um, Chinese names are written, uh, family name first, mm -hmm. then personal name. Uh, mm -hmm. sometimes in America, you will see that like done in different ways. You'll see it. Sometimes you'll see it done with family name first. Sometimes you won't, um, that kind of gets confusing, gets confusing, <laughs> but, um, the way that they always do it in China is they always write their family name first. So right. Stanley Chan in Chinese is Chun Chiu Fan. So the Chun is the Chan. That's the family name that comes first in Chinese. Mm -hmm. And like as an English speaker who like I can't do the tones, I can't do all of the Chinese consonants in particular because they have some just like consonants we don't have in English in particular. Like how would I pronounce his name in sort of like English without it totally fucking it up? Yeah, you could say Chun Chio Fan or Fan. Chun Chio Fan. Or Chun Chiu Fan. Cool. Something Chun like Chiu that. Fan. You know, that's Chiu Fan. obviously like a thick American accent, but like that's, you know, totally. that's more right. accurate, you know? Right. And, and like, uh, and that's a, that's, I'm never going to get better than a thick American accent, at least especially for this podcast. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> totally. And then, you know, uh, for comparison, um, uh, Ken Leo, that last name, Leo, it's usually, mm. you could say it like that, Leo. Um, um, and another one that people might uh, be familiar with is the author of the three body problem. His name you could say like um, Leo Sushin. That's Leo like Sushin. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because I've always said that like six in Lou, which is now that I say that sounds terribly awful. <laughs> yeah. Also, that's, uh, you know, yeah. speaking of, I mean, like we're saying Leo. Say that again for me, sorry. Leo Sushin. That one. Sushin. Yeah. So yeah. we're saying Leo Sushin. That is one place where. Like sometimes some of his translations will have his family name first and other translations will have his personal name first. Like the novels have the personal name first, whereas like a lot of the short stories like in Clark's world, you pointed out are Leo Sif Shin. So, yep. yeah, I guess this is just like, you know, kind of 
I, I mean, this is where translation is imperfect, right? Like there's like, totally. do you translate the intent? Do you trans, do you transliterate? Do you translate like, you know, and, and even do you use like the way that you write these in English letters? Like we don't have English letters for all the sounds made in Chinese. And there are like different orthographies for representing Chinese sounds in English. Um, and the ones we choose to use aren't necessarily designed to be like, easiest for Americans to look at it and be like, this is what this sounds like. Like that's not necessarily the goal of the, you know, orthographies that we use. Yeah, that's very true. Um, in fact, uh, this is like a kind of a total aside, but it's a random, interesting factoid. Pinyin is the name, uh, of the official romanization system for rendering Chinese into, uh, the Latin alphabet that is used by the uh, government of the People's Republic of China. Um, Pinyin is based in part on Cyrillic, <laughs> which oh. <laughs> is oh, hilarious. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah, right. And as soon as if you know anything about Cyrillic, you'll you'll know perhaps that the ZH is a J sound. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's how Pinyin works too. Um, that's just a random. That I say in part because it is only in part. There are other things about Pinyin that are nothing to do with Cyrillic, but that's a, a historical contingency that comes from the fact that the uh, USSR and the People's Republic of China had a very close working relationship at every level of government in the 1950s. Because right. of that, that's when Pinyin was developed, and that's why it was developed in that particular way for that particular letter combination. That's just a random fact. Right. Well, no, and that's perfect. And like Pinyin is what is still used for, you know, names like Liu Xu Leo Sixun and that is going to I mean constantly trip me up because I'm going to see the X there and not an SH and like have a hard time remembering how to actually speak it yeah another reason why this gets really confusing is that the official romanization system promulgated by the government of mainland China is different from Taiwan and Hong Kong and Malaysia Yep. And Singapore. <laughs> right. Which all also speak Chinese. Yeah, there are a lot of Chinese speaking people in all those places. And so like, you know, <laughs> also, if you go to a, if you go to a Chinatown in America, you know, you could run into all sorts of things. You could run into pinyin. You could run into non-pinyin. There are right. a variety of ways of doing it. And there are there are sort of non-standard ways of doing it, too. Right. I mean, you could r run into like a, you know, fishmonger who just wrote it himself <laughs> in whatever the way he decided to do it. That's right. So that's the, the sort of first comment about names and, and, and how they work. The second mm -hmm. comment I will and, make. And through this podcast, like we'll do our best to sort of like both have Matt speak the name in actual Chinese since he speaks Chinese and then also give me a like, how would I say it in like, you know, butchering it as least possible <laughs> in kind of English Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have any questions, just let us know um, mm -hmm. or, you know, corrections or comments of any kind. Um, so the other comment that I wanted to make about Chinese as a language is that it's um, it's not one language. Um, and this is a, this is a whole big topic, but just to kind of introduce this idea, if you're not familiar with it, um, there are a lot of dialects of Chinese that mm -hmm. are referred to typically by government sources as dialects, but may be very different from standard Mandarin, which is the Chinese that's used, 
um, on the news and by the government in mainland China. Um, Cantonese, for example, you may have heard of. Uh, Cantonese uh, is sometimes referred to as a dialect of Chinese. Cantonese is at least as different from Mandarin as um, Spanish is from French. Um, maybe much more different, actually. Um, Interesting. Uh, depends on who you ask. Um, the grammar, for instance, uh, contains some significant differences. Uh, and the word order, in some cases, is uh, substantially different. Right. Um, and doesn't Cantonese have like double or triple the number of tones that Mandarin does? That's right. That's right. Cantonese has, um, I think, uh, eight tones, depending on how you count them. People count the tones differently, but right, it has, right. you know, eight-ish tones versus Mandarin's four-ish. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is only one. There are... 56 officially recognized minority ethnic groups in China, each of which has at least one officially recognized language, and many of which have more than one. Right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and among those languages, there may also be dialects. So within standard Mandarin, there are, there are, there are dialects that, that may contain different words and, and very different usages and all kinds of things. So, you right. know, it's just important. Like to Shanghai is going to have a different accent than Beijing is going to, I assume. Oh, that's, that's certainly true, but that's not even what I'm talking about. Oh, Shanghai, okay. Shanghai, certainly there's a Shanghainese accent. There's also a dialect called Shanghainese, which right. is Shanghainese is as different from Cantonese and Mandarin as Cantonese and Mandarin are from each other. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's actually like a different, um, it's another different language. Yeah, it's a whole different like uh, family of Chinese, actually. It's the or <laughs> subfamily. But anyway, there is also, however, um, like uh, there are usages in like sort of uh, the area in, in among people who live around the the Yangtze River Delta um, mm -hmm. area where Shanghai is. Um, there are quirks of how they speak mandarin that might be slightly different from people who live around beijing or from people who live around chengdu and sichuan or you know right there's that it's important to remember that china's really really big and there are a lot of people there and mm. every single individual place in china has an incredibly long history um, right and that all contributes to making the the language situation um pretty complicated not only is all of what I just said the case, and that's part of the complexity of Chinese. There's also the age of Chinese, um, and the fact that the writing system is relatively unchanged. It is obviously not co totally unchanged, but it's relatively unchanged um, over most of the course of recorded Chinese history. And that means that, like Chinese kids in school, learn how to read things that were written, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that means when you're writing Chinese, you have choices to make about how old and what version of like classical or, or ancient Chinese you want to use to insert into your writing in different ways, in different contexts for different effects. Mm -hmm. Is that simply a matter of choosing which characters to use? Or is that also a matter of like the way you combine characters or the like sentence structure? Uh, both. It's cool. definitely different grammatically. Um, there are different eras of classical Chinese that that work differently um, mm -hmm. grammatically. Uh, and there's also, of course, you, you, there's a lot of different situations. There are characters that are sort of fall, that have fallen out of use. 
there are slang terms that have fallen out of use, but there are also grammatical structures that are very clearly associated with certain places and times. And then of course, and then of course there's like quoting stuff um, or like, like uh, turns of phrase that are from really long ago, but they're still used. Right. And I guess that's not even getting into like simplified Chinese characters versus traditional Chinese characters, which are no, not even getting into that. Yeah. You know, traditional characters used pretty much everywhere except for mainland China. That's right. Yep. So, so the the point of all of this is just to say that it's complicated and there's a lot going on, and and, and it's kind of neat if you if you have no experience with it. Um, I remember when I first started learning about it, I found it incredibly thrilling to think about this vast like you know, continent of human knowledge that works in all these different ways that at that mm-hmm. time I wasn't familiar with at all. And, and hopefully maybe some of that vastness comes across and, and, uh, that'll be exciting to people. Right. To think about. Well, I definitely find like, I'm obviously the huge language nerd linguistics major here. So I find myself even as much as I'm inserting and asking questions, still holding back because I could just talk about the Chinese language for the rest of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I will say like the way that I tend to think about it is that like China itself as a country is essentially like as large and diverse as Europe is and Mm -hmm. like similar number of people, similar number of ethnic groups, similar number of like, you know, internal divisions. It's just that it is a single nation state and Europe is many. Um, But that I find that very useful just like whenever I start thinking about like Chinese X or Chinese Y to then translate that into my head as European X or European Y and like see how ridiculous or not that statement is Um, like it's an easy kind of gut check for myself to be like, am I being absurd? Because saying something like you know, European science fiction is like, okay, sure. Maybe there's something that that means or like European literature, like there's something that European literature means, but it's a lot of different things within that. Like the European language, like, would I say that? No. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, it is kind of like that. Obviously European languages have a lot in common with each other. Right. But it's also true that you've got like super like there's just so much going on there. I mean, like even unpacking that analogy is kind of too much. So maybe we should move on. Totally, but totally. If people want to hear like more a, about this, let us know, and perhaps we'll do more about it later. <laughs> I find it useful as a gut check, not as an actual like one to one analogy. Totally. No, I agree. It's a great gut check. So yeah. So with those two kind of big facts about Chinese, think about them. Um, I'll just do a really, really quick history of of science fiction in china so what does that even mean okay so the chinese word that uh today so obviously there are stories that were written in chinese that may be like sort of comparable to you know if you think about the like prehistory of science fiction in the west you know you've got all the mm-hmm. things i love to talk about the you know orlando furiosos the like old you know look you know greek stories about uh, wanderers and travelers, you know, whatever, all that sort totally. of stuff, all, all has analogs in Chinese. But if we think about modern science fiction as starting somewhere in the 19th century, mm-hmm. 
and having a, a more particular set of associations with it, or at least having a, a, a closer set of lineages associated with it. Right. That stuff came to China in the late 19th century. So the late 19th century is the first time in China where you start getting some of the European, the early European sci-fi works, stuff by Jules Verne, Frankenstein, uh. and Mary Shelley. That stuff starts getting translated a little bit at the very end of the 19th century. Interesting. That's cool. Yes. And the reason, the, the important thing here is the reason why it was getting translated was because it was considered part and parcel of European culture, of the European culture that was so powerful. And the people who were doing the translating were reform-minded intellectuals like Liang Qichao and Kang Youwei, who are, you don't need to forget the names, it doesn't matter. They're people who are interested in modernizing China. And they saw right. this type of story that the Europeans seemed to, to like as being part of this broader European culture that they wanted to import so that they could use it to make China more powerful and modern. That's fascinating. So they're essentially seeing this like kind of like proto science fiction and saying like, oh, this is part of what modernism is. This is the ideology of modernism. And if we want to also like engage in modernism, we should understand this ideology to some degree. Yeah. Now, it's important to note the, these people I mentioned, these reform minded intellectuals of this period, um, they didn't like mostly translate science fiction. Mostly they translated other stuff. They were translating mm -hmm. like, you know, European philosophers and historians and scientific tracts and, you know, everything under the sun. And as part of this broader project of them, like trying to translate a lot of stuff, you know, Jules Verne is a famous Frenchman who sells lots of books. Okay, like I'll find a story and read it and see if I like it. And if I like it, I'll translate it. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also maybe worth noting that at this point in European history, you know, science fiction didn't, the, the genre distinctions that we're familiar with today didn't quite exist. So right. it was still a little bit of a different thing. But anyway. Right. So yeah, then, that's why I say proto. Yeah, totally. So, so, th so then, you know, uh, one of the big moments in, in the history of Chinese literature is what's called the May 4th movement. May 4th, 1919. Mm. This is a, a, it probably sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo that your history professor wants you to memorize that doesn't actually matter. But I assure you, it's a very big deal. Um, that's the moment, not that day in particular, but the kind of activities, the cultural activities and the cultural ferment that happened around it that eventually all got put together and labeled the May 4th movement. That's the moment in Chinese history when people started actually producing literature in the vernacular. Oh, okay. The fascinating thing about the early translations of Chinese science fiction was that they were done in classical Chinese, which at the time was a language that like only a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population was trained to read. And so there's this, it's like, it's like a, a totally different scenario. You know, you're taking something like Jules Verne, which is designed to be popular. Right. You know, and you're translating it into a language that almost nobody can read. I mean, it's like translating it into Latin or something like that. Yeah. Like liturgical Latin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so like even somebody who's very famous in Chinese literature as a, as a uh, reformer and somebody who is affiliated with the May 4th movement very, very closely as the author Lu Xun, who, you know, if you know only one modern, like 20th century Chinese author, 
he's the one that you should look into. He's an incredibly fascinating and interesting guy who's written a lot of stuff that's been translated into English. There are some really good Penguin editions of some of his essays and some of his short stories that that uh, we can link to if you're interested. Yeah, we'll he, link to him in the show notes for yeah. sure and call it out. He translated a bunch of Jules Verne as well. Um, in He actually did a lot more translating of Jules Verne than those other guys I mentioned in the mm. early years of the 20th century. But even he did it in classical Chinese before the May 4th movement. It was only then that people started actually producing a bunch of literature in like the Chinese that people actually spoke in the street. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that was a watershed. That was a really important moment. And and after that, you start to see more translations and you start to see Chinese people um, producing original works that might be related to science fiction uh, into the verna- in, in the vernacular. Now, the, the early. So I know yeah. I know that it doesn't like matter that much, probably for like Chinese science fiction, in particular. but I'm really curious, like what were some of the elements that like led to the May 4th? movement Ah. happening and in particular like that seems much late like that stuff happened right in like the 1600s or the 1500s in europe really like why did it happen so much later in china or like sort of like what like i I know this is like multiple like entire courses but like i'm (laughs) I'm just curious for like because that i'm so fascinated by right right um well okay so which <laughs> question? All right, I'll just deal with the May 4th movement. We'll leave the yeah, rest yeah, to the that's, side. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So the May 4th movement, the proximate cause was the Treaty of Versailles that ended uh, World War I. Um, okay. And the reason why that was a big deal in China was because the Treaty of Versailles, China was technically uh, on the Allied side, along with Japan, as actually. Um, oh. And there were a number of uh, Chinese people who went to Europe to like to serve as like... Uh, in like logistics brigades, digging ditches, uh, doing sort of manual labor and stuff like that in France. What? Um, <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah, it's it's not super well known in the West, but it is it is known in China. Uh, there were a lot, a lot of, cool. and you know who went? Who you know uh, among the people who were who were there were some uh, some uh, some people who you know like this was one of the first opportunities for some Chinese people to like see Europe and then come back. So it's like a particularly right. interesting moment uh, for that reason. But anyway, right. so unfortunately for China, um, the Chinese government at this time, there's so many things to explain here. So the Chinese <laughs> government, uh, there was a revolution called the Xinhai revolution in 1911, um, that toppled the Qing dynasty and ended mm-hmm. the imperial era in Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Um, and theoretically replaced the imperial dynasty with a republic. In practice, what it actually happened was that a bunch of warlords took over different parts of China. There was a sort of nominal republican government, um, but it didn't really have any power whatsoever. Um, and by 1918, 1919, it was, it was really... Um, you know, it, it was... Everybody knew it was powerless. It was just this sort of fig leaf thing. Um, and so the government of China didn't really, there was no government of China, really. Um, and uh, China was a very, very weak state at this point. It was a, effectively a failed state. Um, and, you know, individual areas might have a strong, like, sort of regional, like, uh, like military leader who kind of ran the show in that area at this point. But, but um, you know, in general, it was a failed state, basically. And other countries were taking advantage of this. This was a, a period of time when, you know, European countries, 
um, had like pieces of China that that they controlled that they had extra mm. extra legal rights on. <clears throat> so you know, Hong Kong was a British colony, but so so were lots of other areas, and there were chunks of you know cities that were like uh, legal concessions to foreign governments. Right. Um, including well, I mean, the American the big one, government. I guess I know about is like Shanghai. There's a big French quarter there, right? Yeah, but there were also other quarters in Shanghai for other mm-hmm. foreign governments, including the American government. And the American government had a military base in Tianjin. And, and you know, I mean, there's all kinds of totally. pieces of China that were run by foreign governments. Um, so China was on the winning side of World War One, and they kind of expected that they would get something out of that. But what happened instead was that they got totally screwed all of the pieces of china that had belonged to germany were given to japan because japan was also on the allies (laughs) and the allied governments made the calculation that japan is a country that is powerful and can do things and china is a failed state and can do nothing and japan really wants these things and so we will give them to japan (laughs) yeah okay okay and this sparked going sparked rioting all all across china the young generation of educated, like intellectual types who were attending some of the first universities in China um, led the charge. And it was really a sort of youth driven movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, a- among the many things that that kind of, you know, sparked people, sparked people's ire, particular ire was the idea that like, um, you know, Chinese, a lot of Chinese people at that time had a lot of sort of negative views of traditional Chinese culture. Traditional Chinese culture in their minds was associated with the failures of the Chinese state um, and its weakness. Mm -hmm. And so part of traditional Chinese culture was like the whole imperial examination system, the use of classical Chinese in government documents, the use of classical Chinese for XYZ. So that became one of the targets of 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 their ire. And it turns out like there wasn't a whole lot these young people could do to like change the government. Um, but there was something they could do to like publish different kinds of literature. So they did. Right. <laughs> okay. So that just came around full circle really quickly. And like a bunch of different puzzle pieces just fell in place. Cool. Cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Okay. So yeah, thank you. I, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. So you have this like, like disaffected youth movement that is like really upset about like, both China being a failed state as well as like Europe taking advantage of that. And they're like, yeah. you know, other Asian, like kind of frenemies taking advantage of that. And like the way that they, one of the ways that they rebelled against that was by actually writing literature into the vernacular and like trying to like modernize in their own way. Yeah. Cool. That's and so fucking cool. There's another cool thing about it too, which is that this year is the 100th anniversary Oh, right. Of course. <laughs> and of course, there have been things in China. But one of the one of the interesting things about uh, current Chinese politics, about which I won't say too much, but, um, you know, the, the, the May 4th movement has had different political associations at other periods since it happened. Right. Yeah, um, I was just going to ask about because this is pre-communist China or like Maoist China. Yeah, it's before... Um, it's before the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, actually, which was, I think it was mm. 1922. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, the May 4th movement is often associated with like young communists because some people with with sort of left wing sensibilities, Lucian himself had had left wing sympathies, although he never joined the Communist Party. 
and mm-hmm. he died before um before the uh the quote unquote well before the end of the chinese civil war right. um uh you know the may 4th movement because of that those affiliations with some of those people is often associated with with the sort of rising group of young left-wing chinese people but it was not about left-wing politics in particular i mean that may have been part of it but it kind of so it's got this complicated resonance for the chinese communist party and they didn't they they certainly wanted some commemorations of it to happen but maybe not others and so it's 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 a complicated (laughs) thing for them to deal with historically cool okay cool so i'm sorry i took us on a long digression i know that was like me taking us on that digression too so it's fine but, with me I, but I no love but I, I i love understanding this like particular context because it really you know i don't know i find it adds like so much flavor um yeah to totally. the rest of it and this is stuff like you know the may 4th movement is something chinese kids learn about in elementary school it's a very important like mm-hmm. it's it's not like obscure in any way. It's it's a very important thing, um, right? So yeah. So as far as science fiction goes, um, there was kind of you can divide the rest of the history of Chinese science fiction maybe into different periods. There's the period until the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, mm-hmm. after the May Fourth, and until the end of the Civil War in 1949, and then there's the period kind of from 1949 to the start of the Cultural Revolution around 1966. And then there's the Cultural Revolution, nothing gets published because there was no publishing in the in the country. <laughs> right. And then after the death of Mao and, you know, the beginning of the reform and opening in around 1978, you have this new period kind of in the in the 80s. There's like an initial boomlet of science fiction and interest in science fiction in the early 80s. And then there's kind of this sort of like staccato like now up now down now in now out now like uh now acceptable now unacceptable kind of back and forth uh of the government's reaction to Mm -hmm. science fiction stories throughout the 80s and 90s um like a really quick question as we're talking about like you know science fiction in china through these different kind of like little mini eras like to what degree is this like Chinese people writing science fiction and to what degree is it like a, you know, Anglo or whatever science fiction getting translated into Chinese? Uh, depends on the era. It's a very good question. Um, and the, so, you know, I'm trying to keep it a little breezy, but like we can totally. dive more into any one of these eras before the end of the civil war. There was a lot of translation going on okay. after the end of the civil war. Um, there was substantially less translation of Western stuff and substantially more focus on the Soviet sphere of influence and translation. Uh. Right. And, and so the, the kind of Soviet, uh, uh, style, um, uh, social realism was a major mm-hmm. factor in science fiction style stories, um, mm-hmm. in the fifties. Um, mm-hmm. and hey man, I mean, Soviet science fiction is something we should dig into some point, but you know, Oh, the, 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 no the doubt. Different, different set of episodes. <laughs> no doubt, dude. I'm so there. But uh, one of the fascinating features of, of Soviet science fiction in the fifties was its focus on children. And that was also true in, in China, um, oh. which they got from the Soviet union. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole thing. That is that could, children as characters, children as like the as audience, audience or both? children as okay. audience. And, and that sort of implies children as characters in many in many cases, but not all. Right, so right. the idea is that 
you know, to um, the uh, two Soviet publishers, um, the justification for science fiction style stories was that they enhanced your imaginative capacity. Uh, and so they were like part, they were like an important pedagogical piece in the raising of like, you know, of certain, homo Soviet, certain, right. Of homo Sovieticus. Yeah. Right, right. Like the, so the, you know, the, the Chinese, um, Chinese publishing kind of took that idea and, and ran with it to some extent. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So then, um, uh, in the eighties and nineties, like I said, kind of now in now out, just an example of what I mean by that. After 1978 and the reform and opening era kind of began, you had some people starting to translate Western stuff again. And, mm -hmm. you know, for example, you've got bootleg copies of Star Wars and bootleg copies of mm -hmm. Star Wars manga and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then in 1983, there was the first spiritual pollution campaign and there was a big clampdown and all that sort of thing. So, you know, there, and that kind of back and forth. Happened. And then, of course, there's maybe another opening uh, in the middle of the 80s and then... Uh, another conservative reaction and then another opening in, in the late 80s and then Tiananmen Square and then you know like so it's this back mm. and forth um in the uh, and throughout I think all of these periods of time that is to say from the late 19th century up to the 90s I think it's probably fair to say that stuff that we would call kind of like works that are similar to mainstream science fiction um, that were written by Chinese people that is to say not translations yeah were not that popular. Okay. There was not a big audience for them okay, at any cool. in, in any of these periods. Some of the uh, translated works had audiences for sure. Like people, you know, if you if you count Star Wars as science fiction, that's certainly something that had a certain kind of audience. Um, you know, Jules Verne had a certain audience. Um, magical realism, including stuff like Borges, got big in the eighties and became part of like university curriculums. You know, oh, when, that's interesting, especially oh, totally. given some of the like you know kind of communist undertones of a lot of that. Given like South American, yeah, South American left wing like, politics. So, yeah, right, totally. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, um, I took literature classes in a Chinese university at one point in my life, and I had these like. I bought these like readers that are like, you know, collections of things to read in Chinese, which included like translated fiction. And these are these are, you know, pieces of a standard uh, literature curriculum for a university student in China, at totally. least as of, you know, back then. Um, and, you know, there were stories by Borges. There were stories by Mark Twain, you know, stuff like that. You know, um, oh, Henry, you know, um, there's certainly things that are at least adjacent to science fiction, even if you don't think like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court counts as sci-fi, which I get. Right. But it's still... I mean, I sure thought it did when I was a kid and I read that, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, that's the kind of thing that, that uh, you know, cool. there's a decent chance uh, a sort of well-read Chinese person will will know about something right. like that. Um, and cool. Borges is even more popular. I think Borges is pretty well-known among people who like are well-read in China. Um so, uh, so then yeah, I guess so, you get to kind of the 2000s-ish. Yeah, well, actually, right before that, in the very okay. late 90s, I think it was like around 99, there's the first event in like recent Chinese history that really made science fiction, as we kind of usually think of it, into kind of like a mass phenomenon. Uh -huh. And that was that, so in China, they have a, a college entrance exam, which is very, very big deal. Mm -hmm. um, it's called the Gaokao. Um, and the college entrance exam includes essay questions. And one of the essay questions 
And it's the same for all the students in all of China, right? So it's huge and everybody sees it and it's a huge so deal. like hundreds of millions of people are taking it a year. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe or at not least tens polar, of millions. Yeah, right, exactly. Lots and lots of people. Um, so one of the questions uh, in that year, I think it was 99, but it was around then, um, on the Gaokao essay, on, for a Gaokao essay was um, about, oh, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was a science fiction based question it involved a sci-fi trope it had to do with like recording your memories or like transplanting your memories or something like that oh interesting and this was like the first time a truly mainstream like everyone in the country is experiencing this type of thing kind of involved a you know a, a sci-fi trope in a really big way or one of the first times for sure Mm-hmm. And one, you know, the, just to give you a sense of the effect that this had at that time in China, there was really one main science fiction magazine. Like it was called, I think, Science Fiction World, and it still exists and it's still a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. But the circulation of Science Fiction World, I think, like tripled or quadrupled after that Gaokao thing. Right. I mean, I remember <laughs> this in the in that podcast that you sent me, and I, I think it was Stanley Chan even who was talking about maybe not maybe it was one of the other guests but um you know they said that like at the its height around this time it had a circulation of like 400,000 you know like 400,000 subscribers like 400,000 science fiction magazines getting like you know distributed a month which is you know more than all the science fiction magazines in America combined right like that is a huge yeah. subscribership that's a lot. to something like that it's yeah, gigantic yeah, yeah. yeah um that's fascinating okay yeah. cool and the other interesting thing of course is that it fell off after this like this was a boomlet right. and then the boom ended and circulation went down and and but i think i think it's fair to say that you know it's also really since interesting. Then, yeah. Sorry. Go go, go, no, go. No. Finish oh, your yeah. thought. I was just going to say, I, since then, there was kind of a, a mini era kind of from then to three body problem winning the Hugo. And then that is like a new era. That's like inaugurated right. a new era in my cool. mind. <laughs> so, so I was going to like the other thing that I was going to say that kind of like, it's interesting that like there's this pop cultural thing that happens in China, like this sort of like monoculture in the like collective consciousness about science fiction. Where like for us, a lot of that comes through media, right? Like you could you could identify something similar, for instance, when Star Wars blew up in the 70s and 80s, right? Like you, you mm-hmm. could identify some of these things in American history. Um, but a lot of that happens through this kind of like cultural hegemony that say Hollywood has or that the newspapers have or that now like kind of you know Netflix and like T- HBO and TV have whereas in China it was this like college entrance exam it was it was like not media following media but like media following the sort of like government like thematic questions um I don't know. I, I, if I just like kind of this interesting point of difference of like we both had monocultures like they were expressed in very different ways. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's also worth saying that, you know, throughout all of the periods since reform and opening in the late 70s, there have been other uh, more mainstream Chinese authors who might have been influenced by science fiction. People mm. like um, people like, uh, well, Depending on who you're talking about, you know, um, anyone from Wang Xiaobo, who's a, a well-known um, novelist who died in the late 90s, but who 
was really one of the big 80s and 90s uh, authors of like, I don't know, cool lit fic or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Um, a- a- anyone from him to like maybe like a Wang Shuo, who's uh, a hooligan writer, so-called uh, of the of the 80s. Hooligan writer. Yeah, he he wrote a lot of like dirty, gritty, realistic young people having sex and real arguments type of fiction. Oh, and, so and like getting into gutter trouble. punk fiction. Right. Yeah. A lot of gutter Fucking punk stuff cool. in the 80s. Um, That's and, so awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are just I mean, there's China is a big place. Oh, I'm totally. just naming like the most famous people. You know, there are plenty right. of others um, or even somebody like, you know, in the mid in the middle of the 20th century, somebody like Lao Shua. Lao Shua is a very famous mm-hmm. um, cl- like one of the greats, one of the like six great. 20th century Chinese authors or whatever. He wrote a novel um, that was that you could basically call science fiction that I haven't read, but it's about like a planet of cats or something. I'm not actually sure exactly what it's about, but but I've heard people call it science fiction. And that was in the 40s. Um, So it's like there is a just like you get anywhere. There's a thing where people who maybe aren't traditionally considered sci-fi authors are also writing stuff that kind of is sci-fi. Right. At least speculative in whatever way. Yeah, totally. So another question I had, cause, so, you know, uh, my former roommate before he moved in with me uh, was living in China. And one of the things that uh, he told me that like, you know, and, and I'm wondering like how recent this is, is that um, one of the big, uh, how to say like science fiction genres influences whatever right now in china like a a lot of science fiction that a lot of people consume is japanese anime and manga like it's hugely popular in china and i'm just kind of curious how like that fits in especially in this sort of like you know 2000s to three body problem three body problem to now kind of like eras Oh, yeah. I mean, Japan's cultural influence in China has been very big. And that actually goes back to the uh, the late 70s, early 80s. OK, um, depending on the generation of Chinese people you talk to, they'll be familiar with whatever that generation big anime and manga were. So like, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Astro Boy is known, you know, mm-hmm. Dragon Ball mm-hmm. is known. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Gundam. Uh, I'm naming animes. Right, right. That totally. are also manga. You know, I mean, there, there are there are a whole lot. Like, that's all stuff from the the eighties. Um, but then the nineties, you know, Neon Genesis Evangelion is known. I mean, like, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff from Japan that that has had a big impact on China as well. And that's definitely worth worth uh, reminding people of because, of course, I mean, every time you go to another culture, if you want to see what the world looks like from that culture, um. You can look back to where you came from, mm-hmm. and that's cool. But you can also look in any direction and see what the relationships, what the world looks like from that new perspective, like right. not just in terms of your old culture. Right. So China also gets stuff like 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 we we're saying from from Latin America, um, from Europe. Um, mm-hmm. Kafka is very big in China, I would say, in oh, general. Like, he's very well I, known. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, like, so I mentioned Lu Xun. Lu Xun was, was very influenced by Kafka in a big way. Oh, right. Yeah, anyway. I feel like Kafka would have, like, a lot of valence in, like, China, too. Um, <laughs> like, and, and not just, like, oh, communism, yeah. blah, blah, but also, like, I mean, like, the history of the Chinese central government is the history of, like, bureaucracy and, like, bureaucracy f- 
going way further back than bureaucracy existed in Europe, right? Like then bureaucracy existed in the West. And it's, you know, I, I've, I've read like a few Chinese histories and like, it's always striking to me how like the way that communication technology feels so much more modern in China, even in like the 1300s than it did in like Europe at the time. Um, because everyone's writing to each other, the entire like, you know, bureaucratic system is based on like writing letters to each other, um, keeping track of things, having essentially spreadsheets. Um, I, I, I always find that really fascinating. Um, but yeah, also too to this point of like, as we think about like, oh, science fiction in China, I think it's worth, you know, it's like, yeah, we talk about, you know, American science fiction and translation, but also you have this Japanese science fiction and translation, which is itself communicating with like, you know, American science fiction and European science fiction. And it's like, these things are not like one way streets, nor are they like, you know, like direct pathways. Like you might get ideas kind of coming in very different ways. Oh, so true. I, I, I think it's a, a terrific point bringing up japan it's awesome um and then another question i had um and this is just sort of like you that you brought this up and I, i'm curious like what other literary genres are popular in china especially over let's say the last like 30 years you know like not just right this moment but like as we think of like 90s 2000s 2010s like kind of what are the like literary genres and maybe even like media that are really popular yeah so i mean if you go into a chinese bookstore and I've been to a lot. <laughs> it's literally right. my favorite activity. <laughs> um, uh, if you go to a Chinese bookstore, they have all the same sections. There are a couple of sections that they have that are a little bit, uh, you know, if you translate them directly, there's not a direct analog. Right. But mostly they have all the same sections. You know, there's there's books about current events there's books about politics there's books about history there's novels there's translated novels there's um you know there's children's books there's fantasy there's science fiction there's crime right well i'm not asking just about what they have but also like you know what are some of the literary movements that have been really popular like you mentioned the kind of like gutter punk fiction or, or whatever you called it like stuff like that that is like like that's really interesting to me of like you know sort of what's the best seller like what are they writing about well there's two different things here the best sellers and then like literary movements and they're very different okay Um, cool the gutter punk stuff was not like the best selling stuff of the 80s as far as i know and the other thing to remember is that like there's not good if you think there's bad publishing data in america get ready for some bad publishing data because like there's just for all the 80s and the 90s and the aughts there was just like a huge amount of pirating of everything all the time oh right and you know before there was the internet there was there were people would exchange these like um uh there were different types of like audio cassettes and cds that people would exchange Mm -hmm. before that there were like you know laser discs and records and stuff Mm -hmm. um when I was first in China, it was still the era of CDs and like, you know, you could get anything. And as far as what was popular, you know, like if that's why what I said was, what would you, that's why I started talking about what you would see if you went into a store, because honestly, I don't know of another way to really tell what was popular, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I think the answer is like a lot of different things were popular. It's, it's hard to say what's the most popular genre. You know, there are certain authors that were really big at certain times, um, mm-hmm. Wang Suo is like a very famous author, but I don't think 
his style of writing was like the most popular style of writing in the 80s. Right. There were, it was a it was a fad maybe or a, a fashion. But uh, so that's that's fine. I just would love like a couple of more concrete, ex- like specific examples of like this popular was really author. This is the kind of stuff they wrote about sort of thing, because I always find that stuff really interesting. Yeah. So I think the, like, maybe one into specifics. Yeah. One one interesting thing I could do is tell you a, a little about some stuff that's slightly different. So, okay, so there's, so people like crime. Choose how to answer this in the way you want to. People love crime fiction the world over. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a particular, and people also love ghost stories and like horror kind of fiction the world over, thrillers, that kind of thing. In China, there's a particular kind of combo of those three things called the like tomb robbing story. Um, Mm. And there's a lot of books like this. There's a lot of stories like this. Um, They tend to be like kind of thrilly, ghost story, crimey type of stories. Um, so that's a kind of thing that, you know, it's, it's certainly similar to stuff that people have elsewhere, but it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool, maybe like slightly more Chinesey thing. Right. No, no, that's really neat. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Where it's sort of like get some flavor of like, you know, I guess maybe this is a decent time to talk about, you know, so in the introduction to invisible planets, Ken Liu has this thing where he talks about, you know, people will often ask me, what's the difference between Chinese science fiction and English science fiction? And he talks about how in a lot of ways, that's like the wrong question, right? Like one of the answers is just like Chinese science fiction isn't just one thing any more than English science fiction is just one thing. There are just as many subgenres. Some of the subgenres are the same. Some of them are different or have like different valences or whatever. There's like different things people talk about. But, you know, asking like, oh, tell me everything about Chinese science fiction. Tell me what Chinese science fiction is or means is kind of an incoherent question. And we got at this a little bit with this idea of, you know, I, this is why for me sort of like European is like a, like a useful kind of gut check of like, totally. tell me what European science fiction is. It's like, I don't fucking know, man. Like, what do you even mean by that question? And like, <laughs> you know, like the same kind of response is like what that question, even though I think it's, it's a common one. I mean, I know it's a question I've asked before. I know it's a question that like, you know, it is sort of like, Oh, like I want this like quick sound bite on like how Chinese science fiction works. Um, yeah. So there's another, uh, I, I think this is a, a, an important thing to talk about um, because people want to know. I think there's a real hunger for people both in China and in America to understand the other country yeah. um, more. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you know, when I lived in China, I got questions like this all the time from Chinese people about America. And I think Americans ask me very similar questions about China. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I'm just one person. And when I lived in France, I got the same questions living in France too, just to, (laughs) you know. It just makes sense. People are are interested in other parts of the world that they they maybe don't know as much about. Mm -hmm. So it it makes sense to to be interested. And I think the, the answer is really, you know, that you have to make it more complicated, like discuss the question itself, uh, like Adrian, like Adrian was saying. Um, so I think it's useful maybe to just like, one thing that we can do is talk a lot. I, what I like to do personally is I like to talk about just more and more and more context, talk a little bit about the history, talk a little bit about about some stuff that they have that maybe is less familiar. Mm -hmm. Don't say, Mm -hmm. for example, um, Oh, well, in China, science fiction involves tombs more often than in America. Well, that's not actually true. I don't even know what that means. That's nonsense. But it is true that they sort of have this like interesting kind of subgenre or whatever you want to call it that, you know, you could say is similar to certain American stories. Um, 
Right. It's maybe even a little bit similar to, for example, The Mummy. You guys remember that movie mm-hmm. <laughs> with Brendan mm-hmm. Fraser? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, believe me, I do. Scorpion King, man, The Rock, his first leading role. That was big. <laughs> I actually secretly love those movies. But um, but like, you know, that that's kind of a similar if, if you want to know what what kind of story we're talking about or Indiana Jones. It's a little bit like that. Maybe some of them mm-hmm. are more thrillier and more scary and, you know. Right. But like, no, but, it's, it, but it's cool yeah. where we can get to this thing of like. You know, it's funny, like you like context. And I think what I like is really getting to specifics of like, you know, I don't know what Chinese science fiction is or means, but I do know that Folding Beijing is like one of the best short stories I've ever read and particularly like deals with class in a like somehow both blindingly obvious and like completely brand new way. It is beautiful. Right. And like. I like I always love kind of digging in and I think maybe this is actually another plug just for invisible planets like after you read waste tide with us like if you're interested in more that's really cool because it's a collection of short stories where each author gets like between two and four short stories published so you get like multiple stories from the same author each author gets kind of like, like you get a sense of this sort of like breadth, right? Like it's not trying to be, this is what Chinese science fiction is, but it's this sense of like, here's several really specific examples of different kinds of things that can be right. So it's both breadth and depth in the same sense. Um, And like I said, Ken has a lot of like, just sort of essays, introductions to the authors, essays about like science fiction and about this question and like why and the ways in which it's not a good question um, that are, I think, really helpful. Like if you want this context, that's one of those great places for me to go. I think that's really true. I second that. I have not read that whole book, but I've read a bunch of the stories in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really it's a good collection. It's really interesting to me to think of because like I think he does a really good job Ken Leo does a really good job of picking some stuff to have people start with yeah. um, because it's so difficult to try to imagine condensing like you can't condense it. There's too much. You, it doesn't condense. Mm-hmm. It's irreducible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things also to think about is maybe what what sort of things did Ken Leo not put into that book? That book is a great place to start. What are the things that are hard to show Americans? Um, yeah. And I think the most difficult thing to show Americans is internet fiction. Hmm. If you are familiar with the world of fandom or the worlds, the many, the multiverse of fandoms um, right. that exists in English on the internet. Like the AO3 kind of stuff. Exactly. Everything from AO3 to like, you know, Archive of your Tumblr, you know, to right. your, your Tumblrs and your whatever, like the whole vast universe of, of fanfic, but also just people like uh, geeking out about stuff they love. Right. That same kind of thing exists in China, um, but the volume of it is correspondingly larger because there are that many more <laughs> Chinese people. Right. <laughs> so if you think, oh man, so there are like four <laughs> times more Chinese people than there are Americans. Exactly. Um, so, so like there's a huge amount of original fiction Oh. A lot of which is is properly classified as science. I mean, like it's just using the same tropes. You know, maybe there's clones, maybe there's time travel, maybe there's robots, maybe there's spaceships, whatever. Like whatever you want, it's being written on the Chinese internet somewhere and published for free on somebody's, you know, uh, on a BBS or or on a on right. Weixin or you know wherever. 
There's a, a mm-hmm. thousand places people publish things on the internet. And and one of the things that happens, just like, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, the uh, 50, Shades 50 Shades. Yeah, just like 50 Shades of Grey um, became this like actual big Hollywood thing. Um, there are there are uh, Chinese stories that are published first online for free that eventually get published and become popular in traditional mm-hmm. publishing mm-hmm. circles. So like all that stuff is going on too. And that's really difficult to share with people who don't read Chinese because there's just too much of it to translate. Like, you know, the, right. there's so much of it and it changes so fast and it's all based on these like sort of quick transient online social interactions that people have. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that that's that's something that maybe it's it's cool to to know exists and you know there's just a and it's just cool to be aware that the 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 what you're seeing is the tiniest tiniest sliver of of what's out there. That's really fascinating. Sorry, I like dead airspace, but but I I mean that's really cool and that's that's where this, you know, I mean obviously that also exists in English and you know it probably like in English, it's just as opaque to me as the Chinese stuff is because I'm not <laughs> a part of those communities, you know, yeah. I know we have listener. I mean, I talked to some of our listeners on Twitter who like are a part of those communities and like talk about it and stuff. And it's always really fascinating to me. And I've read a little bit of fan fiction, but it is, you know, yeah, it's not my thing. So it's like opaque in some ways. And I do know too, in the um, follow up to invisible planets, which was just, um, published i think 2018 like last year and i'm blanking on the name of it but um ken does translate some internet fiction works in that like there are a couple oh of, i like, didn't know that that's awesome authors in that one yeah yeah that's um, great so that's that that's cool too like like it, it's a blind or not a blind spot necessarily but it was a thing he talks about a little bit in the invisible planets essay of like he knows that exists and he's not doing it on purpose yeah <laughs> i mean it's, it's just big, it's just you know? difficult Right. And so he tries to get into that a little yeah. bit in, in, in the follow up, which is cool. Um, yeah. Another thing that I would say is harder to show people is if you like I was saying before, if you walk into a bookstore and you go to the section, if they have a section for science fiction, which many of them do, mm-hmm. um, most of what you'll see uh, will not have been written by like you'll you'll see the three body problem and, and like the famous stuff it's still right, they'll right. carry it it's not that it's not famous in china but, but there, you'll also see a whole lot of stuff maybe it's written for a younger audience um maybe it's just like written by oh, i don't know they do have these in america i guess but they probably have a lot more of them in china there are these collectives if you imagine like James Patterson, you know, like he doesn't actually write all of the books. It's like yeah. James Patterson with so-and-so and the so-and-so right, right, right. actually wrote the thing. Tom Clancy, right, et cetera, right, right. et cetera. They have a lot of those type of workshops, workshop style author, combo author situations in China. Interesting. So you'll see a lot, like if you just go into a bookstore and look at the sci-fi, you'll see a lot of these like sort of like lower quality churned out like workshop sci-fi books that are almost like pulps. Right. Almost, almost like imagine that kind of thing. Right. Um, but it'll be like a novella or a novel or something like that. Like I, I remember I, I read one of these many, many years ago, just as an example. Um, it was called the, uh, uh, shoot, I guess it'd be something like the Bureau of Investigation of Extraordinary, Extraordinary Affairs. That was like the name of it. Yeah. Something like that. And it was a story about this like secret 
these like team of secret agents who invest. It's like X-Files, right? It's like this team yeah. of secret agents who investigate weird paranormal shit. And the paranormal shit always turns out to be real. And it involves like clones or like lasers or like gene splicing, you know, stuff like that. And right. the audience. Well, you know what else that reminds yeah. me of is book burners, Max Gladstone, yeah. cereal. But bo- and like cereal box is also, you know, I don't want to call that like low quality, but like in it's that not, it's no, also it's these like quality. collective, you know, collectively written workshoppy type fiction. Yeah. That yeah. is also kind of like the pulps and that it's published quickly. You get a lot of it, et cetera, oh, yeah. et cetera. Totally. Totally. That's cool. That's really neat. Yeah. So I think that's probably, you know, if you ask like a random kid, their introduction to these tropes will most likely have come from the internet slash social media or one of these pulpy stories. Yeah. Um, or like film. Right. Um, and that's the other big thing in here is that like China or science fiction film is getting bigger and bigger in China. And this is something I know a little bit about because I like watching box office numbers. (laughs) (laughs) It's like other people at fantasy football. Like I read box office mojo pretty regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, but like, you know, the biggest sci-fi or the biggest movies in China any given year are often, if not directly science fiction, like fantasy or these kind of like big spectacle, like, you know, blockbusters that tend to have this kind of like imaginative, fantastical, science fictional, like whatever elements, you know, Fast and the Furious. Is that science fiction? No, but it is this very technical about technology. Like, you know, that's like they're superheroes who use cars as their superpowers. Like it's not science fiction, but it also fits in there. And they're the biggest movies in China. Right. Yeah. And you also get stuff like um, what was it? Wandering Earth, which was just, you know, this like giant science fiction movie based on a, a one of Leo's uh, short stories um, that was, you know, I, th- I think the biggest Chinese movie production ever. Definitely the biggest Chinese science fiction movie production ever and was huge over there and even got, you know, translated and like came to a lot of American theaters too. I think it had like a, you know, fairly limited, but like large for like a translated Chinese movie release in America. Um, So like that is another really big thing and one where like more and more you're seeing like the Chinese version of this stuff, like, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, as like kind of like more and more American movies are being allowed into China. You're getting a lot of these kind of like science fiction blockbusters going over. And now more and more, you're getting the Chinese version of those science fiction blockbusters getting produced in China as opposed to like over here. Yeah. People may remember the movie 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a movie that was co-produced with a uh, Chinese production house. And it, of course, involved a big China component, if you recall the plot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what Basically, it's a story, It's like a disaster movie about the end of the world. And uh, humanity um, is saved because there's these like arcs that were constructed by the Chinese government in the Himalayas and whatever. Right. But like, it's a hilarious, you know, sci-fi no, piece of sci-fi nonsense, I guess. Uh, I mm-hmm. kind of enjoyed it. I mean, it's not a good movie, but I kind of enjoyed it. But like that came out only a few years ago and and like is a perfect example of what Adrian's talking about. 
Right. Well, and that co-production thing is happening a lot more and more. Like there's a lot of Chinese money in Hollywood right now. And I mean, even like Arrival was a Chinese co-production. Like that's why there's this big added element of this like Chinese general, like helping save the day in the movie that did not exist in, um, <laughs> in uh, the original story. Right. Yeah. And it's like, these things are becoming, you know, and it, part of it is like, you know, I mean, Hollywood has always done a lot of audience development, but now they're doing audience development also for the Chinese audience because it's the second largest movie market in the world. And it's rivaling the American movie market if we're like some kinds of movies. Yeah, I mean, it, it, either it has already in total box office or it will very soon eclipse the American market or the mm -hmm. North American market in total box office, yearly total box office receipts. That's only a matter right. of time. Right. <laughs> Right. And any given American like blockbuster production is going to probably make more money in America, except for the ones that bomb in America, but still like more than make back their budgets in the Chinese market, which also happens at this point. Yeah. Cool. OK, so, you know, we were also mentioned this like, you know, ultra unreal thing. I think I'm just going to link that in the show notes. I don't think we need to talk about it now. Um, we can maybe talk about that in the post read as well as talk about, you know, I think another thing we'll talk about is we talked about the Chinese language. We'll talk about translation specifically and the like work of doing translation in the post read. Um, but before we wrap up, maybe it's like, should we talk about other similar books or is this kind of like a good place to leave it? And we can do all of that in the post read once we read the book. I think there's one more thing I'll say about Chinese science fiction, which cool. we haven't covered just really quick. And that's that it's probably important to mention the role of the government, the specific mm. active mm -hmm. role of the government in controlling what can be published mm -hmm. um, and in particular what can be broadcast. Um, mm -hmm. The Chinese government takes a very active, the mainland Chinese government, actually, this reminds me of another thing I want to say too, but really quick, the Chinese, mainland Chinese government takes a very active role in influencing what can be published and what can be broadcast on TV and what kinds of movies can be approved for um, showing in theaters. There is in particular a set of rules that have been promulgated by first uh, SARFT and now the um, NART, the, the ministry level uh, organization in China that's a little bit similar to the FCC. It's actually not mm -hmm. that similar, but it's it, they're, they're in charge of saying... Um, what kinds of movies and what kinds of uh, radio and what kinds of uh, television can can be uh, allowed to be made. And they have specific guidelines on the kinds of stories that can be told. And among the guidelines that they have, there are some that actually impact science fiction and fantasy directly mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they don't want stuff that is too... Among the things that they have over the last 15, 20 years not liked very much mm -hmm. have been things that have been too fantastical um that have involved actual china so uh, okay, okay if if it's the avengers in america okay that's america whatever but you don't really see a like lot superheroes of superheroes in china right and and there are some particular things that this is particularly noticeable when there are certain TV shows that have become popular mm. um, that have been canceled, not because they were not popular, but because they were too popular. 
Um, mm. There are a couple of sci-fi tropes that have in particular attracted the attention of um, of the government. Um, the attention and ire of the government. <laughs> yeah. Time travel is actually one of them. Um, oh, fascinating. Yeah. So you will notice that there, uh, with a couple of exceptions... And the main exception is actually Hong Kong. There's a, a famous time travel novel that made, was made into a time travel TV show in Hong Kong a few years ago that was really, really popular. But mm. like in general, time travel is not considered like something that you can make TV about or movies if it's about mm. chi- ch- time travel in China. And mm. the typical reason for this is that like in so many sci-fi time travel stories, there's an element of social criticism attached to the like going to the different time. Right. You know, that's like such a common thing. Um, right. Right. And uh, and they're concerned about that specifically, and so they don't like time travel. Um, that's just an example. There are other things they don't like too. Um, right. <laughs> but like, there was this TV show I remember that used to air when I lived there that I thought was bizarre and cool that involved people from the modern day going back to the Tang Dynasty, and then mm-hmm. it was almost like Doctor Who. Imagine Doctor Who. Like there was a lot of traveling between different dynasties and going to the future and like people from the future totally. coming to the past to try to save the future and all kinds of crazy nonsense. And it got canceled because it was too like it was particularly popular among children because it was so ridiculous and it, and they did they thought it was too popular. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's I I'm I I, I get like I wonder if there's also for the time travel in particular some element of like, you know, historical materialism having this like, well, you know, there's a way that history is supposed to go and like getting into any like changing history or like making it better in the past to make it better in the pre- like any of those tropes like I can totally see why an authoritarian government would find those kind of tropes like very dangerous that philosophical objection that you bring up is totally fascinating but I think it's probably not super philosophical for them and, and probably more like I would love to do a whole podcast on that idea but I think for <laughs> them it's probably mostly just uh that they're you know they're concerned about their monopoly right. on political power and uh <laughs> totally totally well yeah and i mean it ties it ties into that of like you know if you can go into the past and change things that make the present different then like that that tends to lend itself to social commentary i can see why that would yeah. be dangerous uh, that's really fascinating yeah so the big picture is that um it all it comes back to this this essay i read once by wang xiaobo who's an author i mentioned earlier who's one of the best known um cool litfic authors of the of the last like 40 years um mm-hmm. he died in the late 90s before he died he was asked at one point about his views on chinese science fiction and he wrote an essay answering the question why doesn't china have science fiction right. that was the question now of course i would disagree with that question but he answered that question by putting forth a few a few different uh, ideas but he ended the essay by pointing out the way that he put it was like in typically kind of like circuitous subtle fashion he said something like but at the end of the day if i were a film producer and i did get past the x y and z problems with coming up with a good film script and blah 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 blah, and it came time to actually like green light the thing how would i the the phrase he used was like how would i make sure that it fit the circumstances (laughs) i think something like that and like what that means is how would i make sure that it like was acceptable to the censors Basically. Yeah, exactly. How would I make exactly. sure that the government didn't have a problem with it? And the government isn't even one monolithic thing. It's like all it takes is one guy up the chain from you who's mm-hmm. nervous and that's it. Like you don't need mm-hmm. there doesn't have to be some specific directive or or anything. Right, like right. 
And so it's while not like she is individually like of deciding yeah. what can go on television. No, of course not. You know, it's it's just about like everybody is nervous and everybody wants to keep their job and not get like a demerit for allowing the wrong thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. so. So anyway, so he ends the essay by saying like, yeah, well, I, you know, I can see why they don't agree like these things because it would just be trouble when you don't right. need it. And I think that's really true. I think there's an enormous even today. Um, there, there's an enormous amount of stuff that maybe it does get published on the internet somewhere. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't even get published on the internet somewhere. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't get made that could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a really important fact about Chinese science fiction too. Right. Although I do say, I, you know, I want to also, cause I think this is a really vital conversation to have on the flip side. I also like, I had this kind of perception before I read any Chinese science fiction or Chinese modern literature, which I've read a very small amount of now, mostly recommended by you, Matt, but that, you know, sort of like any form of dissent in literature would automatically get censored that you couldn't really do any sort of social criticism. And that is like deeply not true. And to tie it back to waste tide, the book that we're going to be reading right now, like it is deeply critical of uh, my understanding of it. You know, I haven't read it yet, but my understanding of it is it is deeply critical of sort of like, the global economy of China's role in the global economy, even to some degree, like the modern Chinese government, you know, the, the, um, three body problem has like large sections of it that are these like, kind of like, you know, it's almost just like historical fiction about the cultural revolution. And it is incredibly critical of the cultural revolution. Like it is not pro, you know, it's like you can actually be critical of Chinese history of like the communist, maybe not the communist party more broadly or like Mao specifically, but you can actually like, there is room for some dissent. There is room for dissent in literature. There is room for criticism in literature for also just like larger criticism in the sense of like asking what was good and what wasn't, or of like presenting stories that are uncomfortable. Like, you know, I don't want to make it like, I think it's so easy for people to go to this place of like, Oh, you know, modern China is like Soviet Russia and you can't say anything bad about any one or you'll get like disappeared or whatever and it's like that's not true like there are problems it is an authoritarian state but yeah. also it's different than that yeah yeah it, it really is and i think there's there's i guess two things i would say about this one not even soviet russia is like soviet russia that's air quotes that's me doing air quotes <laughs> right, totally totally that's me doing air quotes around like the thing you think about Soviet Russia, like if you really dig into Soviet Russia, like it, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of complexity that perhaps is lost right. in in like watching Red Dawn a lot. But hundred percent. Um, but the second thing is, you know, like in order to understand censorship is complicated. It, it doesn't it's not typically a blunt instrument. Mm-hmm. It's about expectations. It's about self-censorship. It's about the lines kind of changing over time and different people have different having different opinions about what's okay and what's not understanding how censorship works requires understanding a, a lot of detail about the particular cultural context that is taking place in i i would say that there's a lot of censorship in china but it's hard to sum up in a soundbite how it totally. works exactly um, totally Totally. Yeah. And I guess I just want to use my examples. Like I had this kind of ignorant view that like, you know, social criticism isn't acceptable in Chinese literature because it is true that some artists 
literary figures like are even today persecuted run out of China, whatever for their views that that does happen. But that's not to say that social commentary isn't allowed. Like those are two actually different extremes. That's right. That's right. So yeah, with, I mean, with that, I think I've, I've exhausted all the things I wanted to say, uh, in my (laughs) quote unquote brief introduction (laughs) to Chinese (laughs) science fiction. Um, this is so cool. How do you feel man. about Thank it? You. I'm I'm stoked. I'm really excited to read this. You know, we we talked about this novel much less than we normally do in a typical pre-read. Um, part of that, again, we haven't either of us read it in particular, what we're both excited about. But I think that like I'm really excited to come back to it having read this particular novel and getting to talk about like, okay, now that we've read this, how does this relate to it? How does it change some of our ideas? How does the May 4th movement relate to <laughs> waste time? I mean, I think, <laughs> that's like I, think these, <laughs> right, I mean, obviously that's absurd, but also No, like, no, no. That's like an essay topic from like a class. That's like <laughs> how does the May 4th movement relate to Chinese science fiction is absolutely like the sort of thing that would be like, you know, right. that's your essay. But, but also that to me is interesting. I mean, that's why I, I, I like writing those essays. That's why I do this yeah. dumb podcast. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm stoked. I really appreciate, you know, I mean, literally in this conversation, I've learned a ton, right? Like I, I know it sounds like oftentimes one of the things I do is just kind of like make statements back to you. But like part of that is the way that I learn is trying to like resynthesize and just like understand by like, if I say this affirmatively, does that get an affirmative response back? And that is like, I've learned a ton here and this has been really great for me. Dude, it's all good. Uh, this is super fun. <laughs> Yay. So thank you. I guess we should, you know, I think this is going to clock in as one of our longest pre-reads ever, <laughs> but worth it. I think like my hope is that like a, that more people will read waste tide than otherwise would have. I think it got like much less fanfare than three body problem did. And I alluded to this a little bit. Like I didn't love three body problem. I don't love Leo as an author. I don't love some of the, like I've read some of the stuff that and he when, has said. When you say you don't love Leo, what you mean is you don't love Leo Sushin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't love Leo Shishin. I love Ken as an author. Um, but like he, you know, Sushin, I I don't know. I've read some of the stuff that he's written. I've read some of the stuff that he's like said and written about science fiction. And I tend to like deeply disagree with it. I think in particular, he's kind of a misogynist and it really comes out in his fiction and his writing. I don't love that. Um, and so I'm excited to read something like very different and like I having read some of Stanley's stories, I fucking, I love them. And, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, I hope that Stanley, if he hears this or whatever, doesn't take this as like me, you know, comparing authors to each other. Like I always feel like they feel very bad about that, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm stoked about this. I think it's going to be really cool and I'm you know, looking forward to getting to, to read something very new for me in like a lot of different ways from like eco sci-fi to like kind of near future, which we haven't done a lot of to obviously Chinese science fiction. Hell yeah. Can't wait. Fucking a it's going to be dope. So I guess, you know, thank you to everyone still listening (laughs) this long. And I hope, I hope this is useful context as you read the novel. I know it will be for me to like understand the novel better. Um, we're going to come back in probably two weeks time with a post read. Um, we've done something different, Matt, you're going to read it in Chinese and I'm going to read it, the English translation, and we'll get to talk a little bit about the like differences there. So it should also be a different kind of post read for us. Um, 
you know, thank you to WJ for the music that you're hearing right now. Uh, you can find him at WJ at SoundCloud. Uh, thank you to Noah Bradley for our artwork. Um, really cool that we get to use that. You can find us. Uh, I tweet from at SpectologyPod on Twitter. You can also write us SpectologyPod at gmail.com if you, you know, have any questions, want to know anything, have any statements, you know, if you're Chinese and you've heard this and we got something wrong or like we got something right or we, you know, got something that you want to like add to, please let us know and we'll talk about please it. Please do. Yeah. Um, you know, any, any of the above. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll be back soon here. Hopefully, you know, I don't know how much bonus content we'll have in September. This is our sort of like more off month usually so yeah we'll be we'll be back with the post read and i'm really looking forward to it peace out guys bye